welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 8. Morality and Gender. I don't usually recommend things that I've um, written, but I wrote a tiny paper back in 1994 when I was really obsessed with all of this stuff called Embedded Women. And I gave that at the Pacific Conference for Women in Psychology, and it's online for you. And if you read that, you'll really understand the, the pathway through this, if this is something that interests you. I'll tell you why it interests me. I was really fascinated by, when I was doing research in 94 with Aboriginal women in Sydney and with white women and their relation to depression and suicidality, and I was aware that, that for some reason women were much more concerned with interpersonal relationships than were men, and that that was often at the basis of a lot of their depression and hopelessness. And I, I thought, how is it that there was this marked difference between men and women in, rega- in re- regards to their concerns? And I got really interested in research by Bakan about communion versus agency, and Vicky Helgerson's work, which was erupting around that time. And I suddenly realized what strong connections that had back to psychoanalytic theory, why it is that women really, really concerned, are really concerned with how they're viewed by others. And so their interpersonal aggression is more likely to be threatening belonging, threatening group acceptance, and issues around gossip and, you know, um, reputation maintenance being of great concern for women. So that's what I'm trying to give you a backdrop to today. Okay, so some contemporary questions about morality. How are we socialized into morality? That seems like a really simple thing for me to say, but I have a number of philosophical friends who would be horrified at my saying that. They would say, you're not socialized into morality. Morality is something innate in us that we have to realize. And of course, I take the view, no, that I think morality arises from our emotional exchanges with others. But that's actually quite radical in certain contexts, and I just need to let you know that. Not everybody thinks that that's the case. Others have very, very different conceptions of morality. More than that, more than thinking it just arises out of emotional processes, I actually think that our morality is influenced by the kind of body that we've got. And that's something that not many philosophers would have a bar of, um, but some, increasingly. And so I sort of see society sitting there in a way, and it's got these kind of cookie-cutter conceptions of gender. It's like, here's what a normal woman is. Here's what a normal man is. And the cookie cutter is just going to come down it. And any bits of you that don't fit into that, forget about them. Repress them. Forget they ever existed. Certainly don't act upon them. Don't express them. Don't do anything about them. But actually, the, the process from the bottom up, from the body up, is much, much messier than this societal cookie cutter conception because we're polymorphously perverse. We've got all these different bodily zones. They've got totally different notions of pleasure. Depending on what happens to us, and you'll see that in a dangerous mesh, um, method, um, Sabina Spielrein, depending on what happens to us in the course of being reared, we can end up with all sorts of wacky conceptions about what's good and bad and how good or bad we are as a result of our parents. So I'm suggesting that bodily differences 
kind of come up against these ready-made social roles in a sense. But they're very powerful social expectations, and, and we are sanctioned powerfully if we don't fit into those social expectations. We can be made to feel quite deviant and strange. Okay, one of the things that um, cognitive scientists and philosophers and psychologists are obsessed with at the moment, if you go to, I went to a, a conference in New York last year, and this was the big issue, the fact that if you ask people why they believe certain things are wrong, they really can't give you very good reasons at all. Okay, so Jonathan Haidt's example is a brother and sister are away on holiday and they decide uh, to sleep with each other. She's on the pill, they use condoms, they both didn't think it was all that amazing, didn't want to do it again, didn't feel particularly damaged by it, um, went on, lived their normal lives, their relationship was totally unchanged. Is it wrong that they did that? Okay, and people go, yes, it's wrong. Why? Well, they might be damaged, but they're not damaged. Hmm. It's wrong. They would have a terribly deformed baby. They couldn't have a baby. There's two types of contraception. Oh, it's wrong. Okay? And so that's what he calls moral dumbfounding, that people can't give full reasons for their belief that something is just wrong. They've got these taboos, but they can't justify them. And he suggests that our moral reasoning is actually just confabulation. We're just making up any kind of reason to justify the fact that we've just got this gut feeling that things are wrong. And he suggests that the real reason for our moral beliefs are now unconscious. Now, strangely enough, Height's view, which is seen as uber-modern, you know, very 2012, 2011 at least, is actually totally consonant with Freud's view of morality. And I've given you Height's um, uh, sort of link there if you want to go to his website and have a look at some of his articles. But he has a thing called moral foundations theory, and he says that what it is that we inevitably acquire as part of our morality is some concern for harm and care, something about fairness and re reciprocity, certainly stuff about in-group loyalty, and that's one of the essay topics that I've picked for you this year, certainly something about authority and respect, but also about some sort of purity or sanctity of the body. And most moral rationales would have those sorts of concerns in them, he would suggest. And I think that would be true. Although the research that I've done is on the kind of moral reasoning that psychopaths are involved in, there's not a lot <laughs> of these sorts of things. And one of my absolute favorites when I asked him about the trolley problem, do you know the trolley problem? Okay, there's a train driving fast down a track and the track splits into two. On the tracks that the train is going to zoom down, there are four people tied to the tracks. Off on a side track, there's a, a track where only one person is tied to the track. The question is, do you flick the switch to divert the train so that four people don't die, but one, pe one person who otherwise would not have died will die as a result of your actions if you flick the switch? And I'm not interested in the decision that people make. It's a horrible situation, isn't it? Um, but I'm interested in the reasons that they give for it. And one of my favorite responses, it was, uh, nobody innocent gets tied to train tracks. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. 
So the most unexpected kind of rationales for why I'm not going to, I'm not even going to touch the switch. Why should I get involved? You know, oh, unexpected response. All right, moral foundations theory. Okay, so Freud's view of morality is optimally, there are certain taboos that we need to acquire to be civilized creatures. We have to sort of imagine that incest is not a good thing. Okay, we have to have an enormous taboo against incest, not only with our blood relatives, but, you know, with those who are in our dependent care. So Woody Allen marrying Sun Yi when she was his adoptive daughter with Mia Farrow is breaking the taboo of incest because it's not just about biological relatedness, even if it might have started out in that way. What it is is it's to separate exploitation from care because to have sex with someone who's less powerful than you is exploitation. And you're supposed to care for those who are less powerful than you, who are in your power. So it's the taboo of incest, but it's not just around incest, it's around power. There's also an important thing, and if you don't get the second thing, respect for the difference between the generations, you are perverse in some ways. Like if there's not that realization that, you know, dad is dad and the son is the son, and that these generational differences are important things, blurring those boundaries renders you perverse in some way. So you have to kind of learn respect for the generations and recognition of the fact of sexual differences, but also the significance of sexual differences, according to Freud. And if you blur either of those, you're going down the pathway of perversity, basically. So how does mor morality arise from a Freudian point of view? Well, inevitably, it's because we're what Western Labar calls we're edible apes. We're born loving and depending on people who are more powerful than us. It's edible because we're not, we don't just have unique access to those powerful others. We're in a competitive situation with our siblings and we get all sorts of jealousy. We get jealousy of the parents for each other and we get jealousy towards our siblings because they're rivals for the parents' love. One of the most interesting things I've seen in recent years have been some marvellous papers on sibling transference in psychotherapy and it's something that no one's really spoken about very much that you don't just get transferential relations towards the therapists which come from your relationships to your parents but you get transference about the imagined other clients that the therapist has does the therapist like the other clients better than you you know that kind of thing and it's not something that people have really written or talked much about but I think it's a very powerful thing I think analytically, you probably shouldn't share a therapist with someone that you're too close to, in a sense, because you're going to get transference towards them. Okay, so it's a competitive situation. We become moral because we fear harm to our body, and we fear the loss of love, says Freud. Now, this sounds quite, quite straightforward, but this ends up really mattering in a moment. So I'll, I'll come back to this, but this is quite a crucial thing, that for somebody to make us give up something we really want, they've got to have something to threaten us with, basically. There has to be something that they say, if you can continue to do this, it will have consequences for you. 
But Freud suggests that the basis of our morality, the bases of our morality, because there are a number of bases, um, they become unconscious. One of the reasons is you have this notion, and lots of psychotherapy like Rogers revive this notion, of unconditional love. Like you want to believe that your parents love you no matter what. But one of the things that we all know at some level is that there are things that we could have done and perhaps tried to do as children that made our parents say, if you continue to do that, you can't stay in this house, you know, or we won't love you. We won't love you in the same way if you continue to do this. And often they don't say it, but you often get the message quite powerfully. And like, for instance, if you're treated as a narcissistic extension of your parent and your parent is really invested in you getting A's at school and you don't get A's, you might come home and think, that's it, I'm worthless, I want to die, and you're eight, but you didn't get an A, all right? Now, it couldn't possibly matter that much to an eight-year-old unless it really mattered to somebody else, if you know what I mean. And yet you have these little kids driving themselves towards perfection and feeling that they're unworthy of love if they don't achieve these standards of perfection from an incredibly young age. Like young ballerinas or young musicians get that sort of pressure um, from a very early age. So we know that we're not really loved unconditionally, and that's not a great thing to keep in mind. So we don't keep it in mind. It becomes unconscious. And we forget that we acquired our moral views under the pain of loss of love from our parents. So the process of socialization becomes unconscious. And what was at stake in that process of socialization into morality also becomes unconscious. We forget that we were sort of held to ransom, in a sense, by our parents. And what's at stake is bodily harm, loss of love, and neglect and death. And as I, as I say, I'm, I'm reading case studies that are available online um, at the moment, which make me realize that neglect and death is, is a very real concern for some children where the parents are not, you know, do not have the child's interests at heart. It, look, the, the statistical chances of, of dying are apparently massively greater if you're living in a family where not all of the adults are your biological parents, like if you're there as a child in a blended family, you're at much greater risk of harm. This, that's just the way that the statistics go. So it's not just um, you know, concerns from your biological parents, but those people who are in loco parentis, they've taken on the role of the parents, might really you know, pose quite a threat to you. So the acquisition of morality is an unconscious process. We repress the process and we only remember the conclusions, which is why someone like Jonathan Haidt can morally dumbfound us because we don't know why we've got the conclusions that we've got. And this is something that I find it's a really beautiful notion. Um, Carruthers, who's a philosopher, ha has been using this in recent years, but I, I think it's been around for a long time. It's called introspective opacity. Now, a, a window is opaque. Like, you know, if you blow your breath onto a window and you can no longer see through it, that's opaque. So if I try to look inside, why do I think this is wrong? I can't quite see my reasoning processes. They're not available to me. I've got what's called introspective opacity. 
And if you've got someone who's slightly OCD, you know, they've got slight obsessive tendencies, it's sometimes very difficult to know what they prefer. You sort of say to them, would you like to go to this restaurant or that restaurant? Oh, I don't know, too hard. Because they can't sort of tell what their emotions are leading them towards. So sometimes you get them to toss a coin, and if they feel a disappointment, okay, they go, oh, I must have preferred the other restaurant. But they couldn't tell until they had sort of done something behaviorally that made them able to realize what was going on inside them. They couldn't just look inside. And lots of people use divination systems like, you know, Taro and the I Ching and things like that to try and overcome this introspective opacity. But we can't, we can't tell our reasons for respecting certain taboos. It just feels a bit disgusting. Like if you think of your parents having sex, it's kind of yick, isn't it? It's kind of, ugh. you just don't want to think about it. Okay, And that's, that's the kind of disgust reaction that there's something there that we just don't want to think about. So morality isn't rational but we rationalize it. Now, what rationalize means is to give a good rather than a true reason for our beliefs or actions. Okay? So morality is not rational because it arises from what are called socially inherited taboos. Now, one of the more depressing things that Freud says, and he says a lot of very depressing things, is he suggests that we have within us a time-resistant bearer of culture. There's something that just doesn't change, doesn't become modern, and that's our superego. Now, the reason I found that depressing is I have a fairly savage superego myself, right? I've also got a pretty powerful id, so it's an even battle, okay? A very even battle within me. But my superego is a fair monster, you know? I was sort of like raised in a very strict Scottish family, you know, and oh, not, not a lot of fun was permitted, if you can imagine. It was all terribly, you know, down the line. Um, and so, of course, you know, having analytic training and things, you think, great. I've now got a superego that's slightly more modern, it's kind of up to date, I can challenge it, it's realistic. Will I pass that on to my own children? No. Damn. Okay. In other words, you mean I'm going to pass that monster Scottish superego on to my poor Australian child? This is terrible. But Freud says, yes, that's what you'll do. And even if you sort of are terribly free and easygoing, the kid will go, oh, she's terribly free and easygoing. I wonder what's underneath that. <laughs> you know, in other words, the kid picks up from your slight overcompensations for having a monster superego to what's actually behind it. And that's one of the more, I really do think that's kind of depressing, but that's what Freud says. So in other words, unlike Jung, who says there's this collective unconscious of what's wise and what's right and what's wrong and death and birth and the wise man and the trickster and the magician and all these imagos. And Jung says we inherit these ideas from the collective unconscious. Freud says no, we don't have to. We pick it up. And kids are pretty 20-20. We pick it up from the way that our parents respond. And, and so we have this cluster of moral beliefs and attitudes, and I told you attitudes are different from preferences a couple of lectures ago. But, and this is a crucial thing, I'm going to come back to it in this lecture, but it's a jump up and downy kind of thing, okay? The superego has no funding of its own. It has no energy of its own. Yes, the id is made up of drives. Yes, the ego has got some drives at its disposal. The superego has no drives. 
So how does it get power? How on earth does it get power within your psychic economy? If I'm suggesting that it's all about affects and drives and they're the ones that have got the bodily clout and it's only the conflict of those that can you know, make you experience psychic conflict, how on earth can the superego have the power that it does, which sometimes includes the power to make you kill yourself, to make you suicide? How could the superego ever convince you that you are unworthy of living if it's got nothing at its disposal? I was at a reading group on Monday night with some former students of mine, and um, I sort of said, the superego is the ultimate banker, basically. It sort of says to the id and the ego, give me all your wealth, I'll take 1%, and I'll invest it really wisely, okay? And that's exactly what it does. It kind of borrows energy, in a sense. It borrows energy. It commands the ego to do the repressing. But the interesting thing is, and this is something that I also have haunting a couple of the essay topics that I've set for you this year, is that the superego, because it borrows its energy, it can actually become quite taken over by id impulses. Have you ever seen someone who's really enjoying punishing demonstrators? Okay, they're the law enforcement person, but there's just that extra sadistic flair to what they're doing. Did you see, for instance, that amazing footage of that guy walking down a series of a line of protesters in the US spraying them with mace spray? It's like YouTube is just astonishing for these sorts of things. What you've got there is moralized aggression. You've got these absolutely peaceful protesters sitting cross-legged, harming no one. And this incredibly toxic spray being sprayed right into their face by someone who's supposedly a law enforcement agent. What you've got there is a morality that's been taken over by id impulses. And if you look at the history of Christianity, and not just Christianity, just about any religion, what you find is that the non-believers are up for grabs. You know, in the name of your religion, you can do almost anything to people that don't share your religion. So what you can have is an incredibly um, moralized aggression, or you can have a morality that's funded by aggressive impulses. And a lot of what the authoritarian personality is about is about how that process can arise. What is it that creates that? Yes, question. Fantastic. So the question was, do I think religion promotes that or do I think it's the aggression within the person that's using religion as an excuse to express their motivation? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, cool. Um, I don't think religion causes it, no. I think that moral beliefs that are unrealistic can cause us to become quite sadistic towards ourselves and then sometimes we turn that sadism outwards onto others to be able to survive. Um, I think sometimes when religions dehumanize the outgroups, that is a problematic thing, but it's not just religions that do that. Nationalities and, and you know, nationalism can do that, for instance. It's any kind of in-group phenomenon whereby it confers superiority to the in-group members and a less than human status to the out-group members. But there is interesting things around religion, I think, because it, because you can't, you can't challenge your own morality, you can't cha challenge your superego, because you were socialized into it 
at an emotional level, and you were socialized into it before you really had full rational power to challenge what was going on. Now, for most of us who are socialized into religion, it's a very similar process. We're socialized into beliefs, perhaps about God, the devil, or karma, or sin, or wrong action, or ahimsa, or whatever, before we can actually go, do I want to believe this? And even if you're a lapsed Catholic or a lapsed Buddhist or whatever, the, the emotional charge of those early socialization experiences are still within you, and you've got to do battle with them at some level if you want you know, to modify your manner of believing in these yeah, systems. So systems of faith, systems of morality, they go beyond the evidence in a sense, you know, always, but they have an amazing hold on us emotionally. So Freud's very anti-religion. Okay, he, he sees it as a as a damaging illusion that's going to hold culture back. I'm not um, anti-religion, but I'm not at all religious myself. Yeah. Okay. So the superego. I hope you've got this kind of sense of it as an incredible, powerful something. It's not quite an entity because it doesn't have drives. It's not a kind of full structure in a sense, and yet it's part of Freud's structural account of the superego, the id, and the ego. But it's an odd one. It's an odd structure. It's quite unlike the other two. And, and the reason it gets its power is the process by which it came into existence. And that's the crucial bit of today's lecture. The superego gets its power as a result of the process that brought it into existence, because we're not born with a superego. Melanie Klein thinks we've got one around 18 months old. Freud says, you haven't really got a superego until you're about five or six. And I'm probably slightly Freudian in that. I don't think you've got a superego at two. Okay, so the superego arises from the Oedipus complex. Now, I just want to sort of say to you, um, I don't know what I think about the Oedipus complex. I have to be really honest about that. I know that it's kind of crucial to the theory, and I know that if you observe little kids, a lot of what Freud says happens really does happen, that little kids really do love their mummy and daddy and are quite rivalrous to one parent or another. So whether or not you want to believe it, the, the evidence is usually there if you're around kids. The crucial thing to realise is when I talk about the ego as being made up of a subset of drives, okay? It's not just. The ego is also made up of identifications, people that we have loved and lost, because we identify with the people that we have to let go of. And so part of what adds up, like a pearl onto the ego, is the kind of shadow of the object, the lost aspects of others. But in part of that process, this little subsystem starts to form within the ego, says Freud, and that's the superego. And so it's totally made up of interjections and identifications with other people. That's the basis of the superego. But the history of how that happened is an incredibly powerful emotional story. And it's those emotions that were involved in the process that give the superego its power to threaten us. And if you've ever got really drunk and felt really shaky and guilty for you know not what the next day, that's the superego going, how dare you dissolve me in alcohol and have a good time, right? I'm absolutely going to give you hell today. And part of the agony of the hangover is not just what your body's feeling like, but psychologically you feel, oh, my God, you know, what did I do? Was it too much fun? Yeah, okay, so that's the sort of superego taking a bite out of you. 
So Oedipus Complex entails that you wanted your parents sexually and you had to give up on them as sexual objects. You have to give up, you have to renounce your desires towards them as love objects. But to replace that lost love relationship, you have to take you take on parts of the personality. And this is called introjection. So you identify with them, that's an emotional bond. And to, to render them really close, you take on the moral standards of both parents. Freud often talks as though it's only the father's morality that we take on, but actually we take on the moral standards of both parents, and both parents are crucially involved in the Oedipus complex. So the outcome of this phase is we act as if we can tell what's good and bad. We just see moral prohibitions as just being true. We don't say rape is bad in, in my culture or incest is bad in my culture or incest is bad now that I'm socialized in this particular way. We just say incest is bad, rape is bad, murder is bad. But initially, bad and good meant what was in, one par in one's parents' interests. And we, we're socialized by that. So we remember the outcomes, we forget the process, the background is lost, and the child just sees the things as good and bad. Okay, so while there may be other things that are real about the objects in the world, you know, they're round, they've got a certain density, you know, we bump into reality, good and bad is not part of an object. It's a swiz, it's a con. There is no objective good or bad. It's a total social construction. It's a total social construction. It's not part of the reality that we bump into. It's just that most cultures kind of share, to some degree, what they see as good and bad. So morality a la psychoanalysis is an intellectual structure, sure, it's a set of moral beliefs, that's an intellectual structure, but it's emotionally derived. And that's actually a very contemporary hypothesis now with Jonathan Haidt and Joshua Green and all sorts of researchers. But there's no natural moral law the moral codes of human construction over and against the animal order, but also it can become over and against other humans. There are humans who aren't given the same rights as others. You look at apartheid in South Africa. You look at the history of slavery in the US. You look at the oppression of women until women were given the vote. You look at Aborigines not being allowed to vote in Australia until 1967. It's incredible. It's just absolutely amazing that there could be people that are fully denied um, basic human rights. It's quite, quite a remarkable thing. So morality, a la psychoanalysis, is born of, of love. But the crucial thing about love, and I really, really want you to remember this, is that all love is ambivalent love from a psychoanalytic point of view. Wherever there's love, there'll be a bit of hate as well. Now, Guntrip, as you know, doesn't think very highly of Freud. He thinks Freud was just way off course with his, his crazy kind of, you know, energy system. But, Guntrip says, the one thing that Freud really brought to our attention, like the one thing that will endure through the ages as a true discovery is that identification is a substitute for a lost human relationship. And that's what he sees as the major finding of psychoanalysis. Or it might be not just for a relationship that you have had to lose, but one that you urgently need but can't obtain. So, for instance, if you're in a concentration camp 
and you start to identify with the people that are really aggressing against you, you know, the, the Jewish prisoners would, would attach bits of the old guards' uniforms to their sort of striped uniforms, um, identifying with the aggressor because they wanted to be like the aggressor so the aggressor would not harm them. And there is that unconscious logic. If I am like it, it will not harm me. If I am like it, it will not harm me. So that's the kind of wish behind identification. One more minute before I give you a coffee. Okay, so Guntrip says, a child who can't get any kind of satisfactory relationship with a parent who's too cold and aloof or too aggressive or too authoritarian, you'd think the kid would go, blow this, I'm off up to see the neighbours, you know. <laughs> but they don't, the wee darlings. It's like they really try to get that parent to like them. And Fairburn's got this incredibly powerful thing. He says, it's much better for you to think you're bad and the parent's good than to think I'm good, but I've got a really rotten parent. And he says it's because it's much better to be a devil living in a world ruled by God than to be an angel in a world ruled by the devil if you're a little one, if you're a little angel, <laughs> okay? So in other words, one of the most terrible things is that kids who are mistreated will assume that they're bad. I call that the basal assumption of badness. And Jeffrey Young talks about this as schema theory. But you've assumed there's something wrong with you. You make that basal assumption, there's something wrong with me, I'm not worthy of love. But you desperately try to become worthy of love by becoming like this grotty parent who's not caring for them, you know, not warm, not able to cherish them. But the kid doesn't know that and just tries to fit in, much to the detriment of their own development. Okay. That was Lecture 8 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose McKenzie-Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.